focus on headline. And let's take a look at what major issues are making the headlines today on Focus on Headline. For this, joining us in the studio, we have Yu Su-min and Che Ji-hee. Guys, welcome back to the studio. Good evening, Good evening. All right, we're going to start things off with this meeting uh, that's, of course, uh, happening. Uh, top military officials from South Korea, the United States, and Japan holding this trilateral meeting uh, to discuss response measures to North Korea. And, of course, uh, the talks do come after North Korea's recent ICBM testing. Now, we did find out that it wasn't a Hwasong-17, it was a Hwasong-17. 17 with some modifications still it is very concerning because it is a long-range intercontinental ballistic missile nevertheless start us off Chihi, what do you have on, on this right so Saul's joint chiefs of staff chairman general Won Incheol and his u.s and japanese counterparts general mark milley and general koji yamazaki met at the trilateral chiefs of defense meeting at the indo-pacific command in hawaii today at 4 p.m local time so that was 11 a.m uh, in our time and the js uh, JCS chiefs of the three countries met for the first time in 11 months after they had last met in April last year. They had attended the change of command ceremony for uh, Admiral John Aquilino back then. Now, today's meeting was arranged as the three countries had shared thoughts on reinforcing security cooperation after North Korea launched an ICBM Thursday local time, which was deemed to have been a move that ended its self-imposed moratorium on nuclear weapons and ICBM tests. Now, the JCS had earlier said in a statement that the three figures will discuss matters such as multilateral cooperation for the promotion of peace and stability on the Korean Peninsula, as well as the Northeast Asia region. Now, one also had scheduled bilateral talks with General Milley, and the JCS had also earlier said that Chairman One will be meeting uh, will be meeting Admiral John Aquil. Aquilino, the commander of the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, and some other senior U.S. military officials uh, to talk about boosting the bilateral alliance between the two countries. And in the joint press statement that was presented by the three countries after today's meeting, uh, it was stated that the three parties discussed the security situation in the region, as well as the challenges uh, that the region is facing and the strong pledge of the U.S. to defend both its allies, South Korea and Japan. Also, the three parties had shared recognition that the efforts to strengthen security through close cooperation and partnership were extremely important. And the meeting also evaluated North Korea's ICBM launched and moves uh, detected in its nuclear test sites, as well as the regime's current status and the situation on the Korean peninsula. Uh, the statement also added that the three states exchanged broad opinions on multilateral cooperation and exercises as part of promoting peace and stability in the Indo-Pacific region and expanding their security cooperation. Now, details on military cooperation of the three countries weren't revealed after the meeting, and it was stressed that multilateral defense cooperation doesn't necessarily directly mean military exercises of any sort. Uh, the trilateral chiefs of defense meeting, the meeting 
that was held today is being held every once or twice a year since 2010, both in person and virtually. And last year's meeting was held in person after several virtual meetings were held due to the COVID-19 pandemic. That's right. And all the more because the consensus is that there's going to be all the more provocations moving forward that we could be potentially uh, looking at another one uh, come somewhere near April 15th when, of course, they uh, celebrate the 110th birthday of their founding leader, Kim Il-sung. Not to mention uh, with the incoming administration, there might be some more provocations moving up uh, to test what the next administration is going to do in regards to North Korea. But again, uh, despite maybe some tensions between South Korea and Japan at this time, a trilateral cooperation with the United States, all the more important for security reasons here on the Korean Peninsula. Uh, so, I mean, we're also hearing some analysis of the latest ICBM launch that happened on March 25th. Uh, according to one media, American media outlet, the recent ICBM fired from near Shinli Middlesol facility, we have some information on that. So what's the report, Don? Yeah, well, the U.S. media outlet Voice of America reported that the location where North Korea fired the ICBM last Thursday is actually at a road between the southern runway of Pyongyang's Sunan Airport and the Shinli Missile Support Facility. Now, this report was based on comparison and analysis of different satellite images, and the exact location of that launch is estimated to be about 1.2 kilometers away from the Shinli Missile Support Facility. Now, according to the assessment, it seems like that North Korea loaded an ICBM on the Tel Tel-Erector uh, launcher on the 24th and moved about 1.2 kilometers along the road and then fired from the middle of the road. Now, there's a sign that uh, this, this is so significant because the Sinli Missile Support Facility is located near the Sunan Airport in Pyongyang, which is about 17 kilometers northwest of Pyongyang. Now, this is, according to the American think tank CSIS, it's reportedly known to be a place where North Korea manufacture or assemble mid to long-range missiles, including, of course, the ICBMs. And VOA, through this report, also confirmed that this Shinli facility is related to North Korea's ballistic missile and weapons program. Now, it's actually the first time that North Korea fired these missiles from here, uh, which is adjacent to private airport facilities. It's quite unusual because North Korea has launched missile tests only in the northern part of this airport, not in the southern part because there are many civilian facilities. Well, critics point out that it's not common to launch an ICBM near an airport or near civilian facilities because if the launch fails, debris can cause damage to nearby aircraft, airports, of course, residential areas, and hence could cause much civilian damage. Yeah, not to mention because uh, right before the, I guess, quote-unquote successful launch of their March 24th Hwasong, uh, you know 15 missile launch, uh, they did fail once, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they actually uh, tried to test fire a long-range intercontinental ballistic missile at that time, but exploded mid-air, so hence uh, all the repercussions being made here. Uh, but Ha Tae-kyung, the lawmaker from the PPP, brought up the interesting assessment of the recent missile launch, especially the one that failed on March 16 that I just talked about. So, Sumin, can you tell us more on that as well? Yeah, you know, South Korean military previously said that the ICBM in question is more similar to the Hwasong-15 missile than the newest Hwasong-17, and in fact, 
fact, after hearing the Defense Commission's report on North Korea's recent ICBM launches, Ha Taegyung, a member of the National Defense Commission of the National Assembly, said that because of the failed test firing of an ICBM on March 17th, missile fragments and debris fell in downtown Pyongyang and reportedly had incurred some damage in residential areas and surprised the residents. We also added that the reason why North Korea promptly fired Hwasong-15 in a matter of weeks and instead advertise it as Hwasong-17, it's for internal reasons to kind of cover up this damage. Now, according to another high-ranking intelligence official, explosion of that missile in the early stages damaged universities in Pyongyang. Now, the senior official said that a large puddle was dug next to Kim Jong-il's political and military university, which is about 9 kilometers away from Pyongyang Sunan Airfield, not to mention the roof of that university building was also blown away. Well, intelligence officials are reportedly analyzing whether the explosion uh, purportedly killed two people even. Uh, that would not uh, make Kim Jong-un very happy. Of course um, not. Of course, they mm-hmm. use uh, missile launches for a number of reasons, uh, for provocation reasons, but also to kind of ramp up uh, the, I guess, uh, the support from the people, right? Mm. Especially during a, a time when there's North Korea is going through quite a bit of an economic hardship. And ne- next thing you know, it's failed and you have debris and maybe there's were uh, some casualties as well. Yeah, I did hear an expert talk about this issue earlier today at a Arirang newscast. And they were saying, yeah, after that the failed missile test, they just really wanted to kind of uh, answer with another successful mm. uh, missile launch. And even though the Hwasong-17 wasn't prepared, yeah. what they did was they modified slightly with the uh, Hwasong-15 so it looks like a Hwasong-17, but in actuality it wasn't. Uh, mm-hmm. But of course, with the kind of information that we get, it's uh, easily detectable. And yeah, it wasn't a Hwasong-17. But it does seem like North Korea is really pushing forward with the show of power in various ways, right? I mean, mm-hmm. this time we're also finding out that there was some unusual movement of an experimental ballistic missile submarine uh, detected over in Pyongyang. Jihi, you have the details of this. Right. So a group of North Korea monitoring experts referred to as Beyond Parallel based in the U.S. said they have detected unusual activity at North Korea, uh, North Korea's primary submarine shipyard. Now, the move was identified through some eight satellite images that were taken amid Pyongyang's ongoing weapons testing. And the images were taken between February 16th and March 27th at the Shimpo South Shipyard in the South Hamgyong province. Uh, Now, that's where Pyongyang used to fire its submarine-launched ballistic missile last October. And the assessed images regarding this August 24th Yongung uh, SSBA, the Experimental Ballistic Missile Submarine, were posted on the website of Beyond Parallel, which is a web project uh, operated by the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Now, what's particularly striking is an image captured on March 22nd, in which this August 24th Yongung SSBA is seen being pulled out from underneath that canopy by a small tunnel. Now, the website added that, quote-unquote, the fact that the small harbor tug is now tied up alongside the submersible missile test stand uh, suggests that the tug may again be used to assist with the movement of this Yongung XSBA in the near future. Now, North Korea uses the August 24th Yongung to conduct submarine-launched ballistic missile tests, and the name August 24th, and it means hero in Korean, uh, was given in honor of the date in 2016 when the first North Korean SLBM was successfully tested. 
And according to Beyond Parallel's analysis, the exact purpose for moving the submarine is unknown, but it's likely related to ongoing modifications, continued repair work, preparations for an upcoming submarine-launched ballistic missile test, uh, a component of a strategic deception plan, or even a combination of these and other reasons. Now, the analyst uh, community is especially vigilant these days, given the number of missile tests of North Korea, and including last week's launch of an intercontinental ballistic missile for the first time since 2017. Now, there are also satellite images indicating activity at the Pungeri nuclear test site, suggesting that the regime could soon detonate even a nuclear bomb for the first time in five years. Yeah, I mean, you know, all this year, right, uh, how many shows of forces they have? Twelve, I believe it was. uh, And we're now just about to approach uh, April. And it's all leading up to, I think, what could be finally the last thing that they might test is a nuclear weapons yeah. test. Mm-hmm. So what's the, what are experts saying? Well, they might be saying that there's, you know, there might be a submarine ballistic missile launch uh, come maybe around uh, April uh, when they, of course, uh, celebrate the, the birthday of their founding leader. Yeah. And then once the UN administration comes in, and we know that uh, Yoon Sagara, President-elect Yoon Sagara, has been uh, you know, very hawkish when it comes to North Korea. And they're going to test him. And what's the best way to mm-hmm. test him? It's going to be a nuclear weapons test, which is going to be unfortunate because now Again, red lines already been crossed. Mm. Uh, we, I think we talked about this yeah. with the ICBM yeah. test on March 24th. But a nuclear test, how are the international community going to respond to that is the big question. And of course, how is the incoming UN administration going to respond to that is the other question that, of course, uh, we'll have to find out later on. Mm. But in the meantime, South Korea's defense ministry is saying that South Korea has successfully test-fired its solid-fuel space rocket. Sumin, you have more on this. Yeah, remember last May on the occasion of the South Korea-U.S. summit, Seoul and Washington did agree to lift the so-called missile guidelines restrictions, which previously had barred South Korea from developing or possessing ballistic missiles with a maximum range of over 800 kilometers. So since then, since this lifting of these missile guidelines restrictions, the development of solid fuel and space rocket gained traction. And yesterday, South Korea successfully test-fired a solid fuel space rocket confirming capabilities of the homegrown space vehicle. Now, Wednesday's test was aimed at verifying the projectile's performances, including fairing separation and the upper stage attitude control feature. So this space rocket is basically designed to put a small satellite into a low Earth orbit for surveillance operations, and this is expected to boost the military's reconnaissance and surveillance capabilities. So if this is compared with a liquid fuel space vehicles, Solid-based ones are usually much simpler and hence easier to mass-produce, and it's most more cost-effective to launch. Well, the ministry said that it plans to launch an actual satellite mounted on the rocket, and when it's completed, small satellites or a number of micro-satellites will be put into low orbit around the Earth. Now, the ADD and the Korea Aerospace Research Institute are also working together to explore the possibility of developing a new rocket combining both liquid and solid fuel engines to improve cost efficiency and its capacity to carry a heavier payload. Now, they're also planning to develop a next-generation medium-sized liquid projectile that can increase the weight of the vehicle and expand the projectile technology based on the technology secured through the development of Nudi rocket, which is a rocket based on uh, with liquid fuel engine. 
Meanwhile, what's especially drawing attention is that the defense ministry abruptly released the success of this test launch without any prior notice. Now, this launch obviously came after North Korea's 12 known rounds of missile and other launches this year, including what North Korea claimed to be the reconnaissance satellite development test. And considering that the defense ministry noted that this success comes at a time that when North Korea broke its moratorium and fired ICBMs, this statement uh, appears to have taken into account North Korea's ICBM launch, which applies almost the same technology as the space projectile. Let's uh, turn our focus to the United States this time because President Joe Biden changed his stance regarding the use of nuclear weapons. Uh, certainly a notable change because uh, Biden had initially pledged to use you know, nuclear weapons only in response to, let's face it, similar attacks, right? So mm-hmm. how exactly has his stance changed? Chihi, tell us more. Well, according to his administration's 2022 nuclear posture review, President Joe Biden has walked back from his longtime preferred policy of the so-called no first use of nuclear weapons. Now, the policy review states that the U.S., quote unquote, would only consider the use of nuclear weapons in extreme circumstances uh, to defend the vital interests of the U.S. or its allies and partners. Uh, However, when Biden was presidential candidate, he said he continued to support the idea of a no first use policy, uh, that the U.S. would launch a nuclear weapon only in response to a nuclear attack. But this support never became an official policy for the U.S., which has for decades maintained a policy of the so-called flexible deterrence. Now, according to the Assistant Defense Secretary for International Security Affairs, Celeste Wallander, uh, the nuclear posture review language does not apply exclusively to nuclear attack, but extends to extreme circumstances that would require the U.S. to defend allies and partners. Now, the summary said the administration will pursue uh, a strategic stability, seek to avoid costly arms races, and facilitate risk reduction and arms control arrangements where possible. Now, the review also added that that it emphasizes the administration's commitment to reducing the role of nuclear weapons and reestablishing its leadership in arms control. And truth be told, uh, and I wish I'm correct on this, I don't think there's going to be any use of nuclear weapons from North Korea against, let's say, South Korea. Now, Mm -hmm. that would be catastrophic also for North Korea. Uh, But I think the reason why this is being mentioned is because there's been talks about uh, with Russia, right, potentially using nuclear weapons. And uh, to be honest with you, I've always said that Kim Jong-un won't use a nuclear weapon. He does not want to lose his power. But, mm-hmm. you know, Vladimir Putin is a completely different person. And I think, you know, he's fully capable of using nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. So maybe the stance and changes, uh, the change in stance is coming out in regards to this. But again, hopefully this is all just talk and there's never a use yeah. of any nuclear weapons in the future. Uh, let's move on to the latest on the COVID-19 front this time. We are certainly seeing uh, still very high daily counts uh, compared to some of the other countries that have already reached the peak. Although there are new surges in different parts of the world, especially because of the stealth Omicron uh, variant. But nevertheless, what's all the more concerning is not necessarily the daily figures Mm -hmm. itself, but the number of critically ill patients on a continuous rise at this time. Sumin, tell us more. 
Yeah, so the daily COVID-19 cases fell more than 100,000 to the 300,000 range, but the number of critically ill patients rose to a new high amid this continued spread of the even more transmissible stealth Omicron variant. Well, today we added 320,743 new COVID-19 infections, which pushed the cumulative total to above 13 million. But this week's figures are still smaller than those recorded in recent weeks. It decreased by about 75,000 from a week ago and over 300,000 from two weeks ago. Well, judging from the figures, the country has just begun to see a downward trend for the first time in about three months. But despite these drops in the number of daily counts, COVID-19 deaths and serious cases still remain relatively high. Well, the number of critically ill patients hit yet another record high of 1,315, which is up 14 from yesterday. We also added 375 COVID-19 deaths, bringing the total to 16,230, and the fatality rate still stands at 0.12 percent. Well, uh, the global media outlets like the Wall Street Journal is pointing to this comparatively low fatality rate as 0.12%. So under the title, despite high COVID-19 case counts, Asian nations learn to live with the virus. Wall Street Journal pointed out that South Korea could indeed become the first country to transition to endemic by citing Monica Gandhi, a professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. Well, South Korea's tally, in fact, is the largest than any developed country has experienced, reaching three times the daily new cases per capita than previous peaks in the United States and United Kingdom. And also at just a mere 0.12% compared to other countries, South Korea indeed has one of the lowest death rates from the virus globally, and that is about a tenth of the rates in the United States and the United Kingdom. So this professor, Monica Gandhi, said that the reason behind this low fertility rate is the one of the highest vaccination rates among adults, high trust in the public health system, and the right tools to emerge from the pandemic. And actually, we are considering downgrading the way we categorize COVID as an infectious disease down the line, although some experts are still raising concerns because downgrading would create a sense of complacency because obviously the pandemic is not over yet. All right, guys, so uh, we've been talking about a uh, number of ways that uh, we've been kind of living with this COVID-19, uh, you know, for over two years at this time. But this article by the Wall Street Journal is an interesting one, especially because the fact that they're saying South Korea could become the first country to transition to endemic. Now, there are also people who uh, kind of voice concerns with that, saying that, I mean, this is not an endemic when you take into consideration the long COVID that you experience, mm-hmm. right? But nevertheless, I want to get your take on uh, this particular Wall Street Journal article and the assessment by, let's start off with you, Chihi. Well, I think it's going to be really difficult for the people in our country to accept this as an endemic because we're facing a surge of the Omicron variant in particular for weeks now. And it's going to be psychologically not very easy to accept that, oh, this is an endemic. You can get it seasonally and you can get treated and get vaccinated in order to prevent yourself from the infection. It's going to be hard to uh, accept that fact. But from a scientific perspective, uh, the experts here from the journal are saying that uh, we have high vaccination rates and the fatality rate is relatively lower compared to other countries. There are scientific grounds to see that Korea may become the first to see this uh, Omicron variant or COVID-19 as an endemic for the first time. 
But uh, in that stance, I do understand the expert's explanation. But I think this has to be explained in depth with some scientific support for the public to understand and accept that it could uh, be an endemic. Hmm. Yeah, um, man, I'm, I'm so cautious <laughs> with this word endemic, yeah. right? I mean, I would love to call it an endemic, yeah. right? And, and by endemic, we could kind of compare it to, you know, seasonal flu, uh, seasonal cold. Although, by the way, guys, I mean, you know that uh, people die from flus mm. and uh, even colds, uh, mm. you know, every year, many num- uh, figures, but I don't have the exact figures on that. I feel like people don't necessarily keep count on that because it's been around for such a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nevertheless, before I say my take on this, so, Sumia, what about yourself? Uh, what's your thoughts on the, uh, the article and its assessment? Yeah, so countries like South Korea and New Zealand have seen higher case counts, but many experts are assessing that hospitalizations and death rates are controlled because of high vaccination rates in these countries. Because, I mean, 96% of the adults received both shots in uh, South Korea and more than half received booster shots. So I think I have been kind of neglecting the efficacy of vaccine shots these days because we, we might not directly directly feel the impact and realize the vaccine efficacy. But I do think the data manifestly showed that it did reduce severity and the fatality rate. And considering places like Hong Kong have struggled with higher death rates because of lower vaccination rates, according to many infectious disease experts, I do think we could be one of the first countries, one of the first Asian countries to switch to quote unquote endemic phase. And also going back to what the professor in the article said, she said that the with high vaccination rates, it's justified for health officials to downgrade the threat level because uh, quote unquote myopic focus on one infection is not the right way to work on public health. We can't say that this is 100% correct, but I do think this have a valid point because I think we have been directing a lot of resources and we've been focusing and containing COVID, which rightfully so, and we have been specifically treating COVID-19 patients. But after we reached the peak, I think that might not be really necessary. And as patients been suffering from other illnesses were not tended to in a timely manner, maybe after we see a clear downward trend, we might really begin to treat COVID-19 in an endemic phase. All right, so here's the thing. This article, I wish I had a chance to read the full article, mm-hmm. but I probably can't because they'll probably make me pay for it and my subscription quota <laughs> quota has uh, surpassed because I've, I have Netflix and Disney Plus, so I can't <laughs> subscribe anymore. But um, this article basically is saying that South Korea has done a good job. All right, yeah. the, the high figures is one thing, but just overall, it's done a good job. Now, you guys, both of you guys, as citizens of South Korea, mm-hmm. do you also feel that the country has done a good job, the government has done a good job, and that we're faring so much better than some of the other countries, uh, just like the article is saying. Uh, start off with you, who has been very critical <laughs> over the past two uh, years. Well, I'm going to be uh, consistent with my <laughs> stance and continue to be critical. <laughs> well, okay. yes, because I've always said, and some experts have also said, I mean, easing of the measures, ultimately, that's the way forward. But it's been done too soon because we haven't really seen the Omicron peak yet. Now we're starting to see it. And we've already eased the measures uh, before that. And that's probably why, partly why, uh, many people, we've seen a surge in the daily infections. Now, yeah. Well, are you are you for are you for the incoming uh, for unit? 
administration uh, easing, basically completely lifting uh, the curfews. Well, that I want to talk about after yeah. I uh, explain my next article. That's because, right. Yes, yes. Uh, Sumia, what about yourself? I'm I mean, basically on the same page with Chihi. We could have done better, but you know, a lot of senior health officials are saying that experiencing a large wave is necessary in the in the process of transitioning to endemic phase. That's what senior health officials Hun Young previously said. And I do think it would have been much better if we could just tame down the sheer size of the pandemic. I mean, we're seeing more than 3,000, even 6,000 cases. So how would you do it better? If you, if, you are, if you are a senior health official, uh, Not you like in. being too inconsistent with all the quarantine measures. Yeah, but measures. what's inconsistent? But then the reason why I, I think you guys keep putting the emphasis on uh, inconsistency, but the, the, point, the problem is when it comes to the coronavirus, there were so many different things that I don't think anybody expected to happen. So they had to kind of... Uh, you know, cater to the situation in itself. So they well, can't just true. go with the same thing over and over again. But I think with the easing of the restriction, the biggest pressure came from the small business owners. Yeah. Right. And, and it was one of those things where how do you go about c- continuously putting these strict measures in place and trying to tame the figures at the same time, not upset the small business owners who've been going through this for over two years. And I think over time, it's just one of those things where the, the, the small business owners just can't take it anymore. Mm. And they had to ease the restrictions here. Mm. So. I, again, I mean, this is one of those things where I feel like, wow, I mean, everyone else is kind of praising uh, what South Korea has done despite the high figures. But, you know, here in South Korea, there's been a lot of people who have been very upset. With because the we are the one experiencing that in reality. Right, exactly. But, you know, one of those things where kind of comparatively to other countries, it's been so good. That's and true. so I, I hate to use the word spoiled, but are we spoiled with the kind of uh, numbers that we have at this time, right? But nevertheless, let's talk about the incoming administration. If I told our listeners, out there, we have we are going to be talking more and more about the incoming administration. Yoon Sagir pledging during his campaign that his administration will develop COVID-19 measures based on science and data. Now, part of this, uh, the transition committee reportedly plans to conduct antibody testing on the public. Uh, Chihi, you have more on this. Right. So as part of his promise to place quarantine measures based on scientific evidence and data, President-elect Yoon Seo-gyal's uh, transition committee is known to be reviewing policies for the lifting of the current social distancing measures based on some scientific evidence. Now, the committee had earlier commented that although the current easing of measures is the ultimate direction forward, it happened too soon before the Omicron wave passed its peak and was not guided by science. And earlier in the day, the committee unveiled its set of policy recommendations for the government's COVID-19 response policies. Uh, An Cheol-su, who's the chair of Yoon's transition committee, announced that he will establish a platform that utilizes big data to analyze those infected with COVID-19, as well as examine the side effects of the vaccines. Also, the government will conduct COVID-19 antibody testing on some 10,000 people to gather scientific data for disease disease control, and containment management. Now, an antibody test shows whether people were infected with the virus in the past, even if they were asymptomatic. So 
if you get these uh, test results, it will help health authorities to learn more about immunity and use the findings for developing new appropriate measures in the future. Now, Ahn said this type of testing for a large number of people became more important in the COVID-19 wave driven by the Omicron variant. And although health authorities have regularly conducted the antibody test between 2020 and 2021, what the Transition Committee recommended was to establish a testing system targeting the whole nation, not just a group of people in certain regions or just against uh, adults. Uh, And also the testing will include children and adolescents as well in 17 different cities and provinces. Well, the most recent antibody testing showed that 67.1% of the tested people had COVID-19 antibodies. All right. I have a lot of questions in regards to this, but uh, let's start off with your thoughts on the new administration COVID-19 policy and uh, this including this uh, whole antibody testing. Let's start off with you, uh, Sumin. Yeah, so when I first saw the news that they are thinking of doing the antibody test for four times per year and make it a regular thing to better understand the virus, well, the, my first impression was, well, as a normal South Korean citizen, well, is this necessary? That was my first impression. It's consistent. Yeah. <laughs> no, but listen to me. As I listened to the health ex- health officials explaining the reason that it's effective for evaluating the risk factors in advance and also changing the vaccination pattern by considering how much denutralized antibodies decrease as time passes, I do now understand the reasoning behind this. And I mean, I'm not an infectious disease expert. And the committee head, Anchor Su, he's a doctor himself. And I think along with other lot of uh, doctors and experts, they might have considered various aspects. And it's, according to the health officials, immensely helpful uh, scientific data to better determine the future quarantine measures and some other infectious diseases going forward. So I do think I know it is a hassle, but, you know, the pandemic is not over yet. And even if eventually becomes an endemic, we could have the next COVID-19, perhaps some other subvariants and other forms of infectious disease that might, you know, hit us. So I think it's better to be better prepared for whatever variables that might come. And this us. is free free of charge, right? I know. Everyone's going to be given four tests per year. Uh, what about yourself, Jihee? Well, I think the science-based quarantine was something that should have come earlier. Now, uh, you've mentioned why was the government, why do you think the government was inconsistent? And the number one criticism that the current government has been receiving is that its measures were didn't really have a clear standard, although I do understand and agree that there were a lot of uncertainties, including like variants, uh, and uh, we had to consider many different groups of people, including small businesses, as well as the health authorities, health staff. Uh, But I think the current government has been too political in terms of their quarantine measure. So what what I mean by this is they've been swayed by different groups of people instead of having their own uh, strong standard regarding their quarantine measures. So now the new uh, committee... I see you're frowning, but I'm just going to continue. Well, I'm not frowning. I'm, okay. just, I'm just listening. Oh, sorry. Okay. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so the new science-based model that the transition committee is pushing forward with, I think, is something that should have come in the beginning because it's going to give some understanding, additional understanding for uh, the public as well. If this is well explained, uh, the public's going to explain why the government is 
developing such quarantine measures, and uh, the small businesses will also understand uh, quarantine measures uh, that may be imposed, and the public will be able to trust the government more if there is a strong science-based model uh, that they use for developing these quarantine measures. Now, uh, regarding this testing of antibodies, it's something that's been uh, conducted uh, in the UK and other countries as well. And what's different with this one and the one that's been carried out before in our country is that, like I said earlier, uh, before it was only focused on regions such as Daegu and the Gyeongbuk province and also just on adults. But with this new uh, recommendation, it's going to be done targeting adolescents and children as well. And for people in 17 different cities and provinces, which is going to give better data, uh, bigger, more uh, more trustable, reliable data that they can use to better come up with uh, more appropriate quarantine measures for the future. You know, it's one of those things where, again, let's face it, uh, two and a half, uh, near almost two and a half years of the pandemic certainly seems like a long time. But mm. uh, we have to take into consideration that it was... Uh, it, it's still early in that we're still trying to find out about the virus, mm -hmm. right? And so, uh, you know, people, the, the more time passes, we're going to learn more about the virus. We're going to learn to deal with the virus better over time. Again, it's one of those things where it was very difficult for any administration, any government in any parts of the world uh, being the first to have tackled this, mm -hmm. I think, which is the reason why there was so much inconsistency because no one really knew how to deal with this in the first place. Yeah. I think there was only like a handful of countries that were very consistent from the start. It's like That's true. Sweden. The UK. We're, we're basically like no mass. <laughs> Nothing no from the smart from the start, right? I mean that was like the only country mm -hmm. out there, but it's it's difficult. Yeah. Uh, before we uh, close off very quickly, let's move on to some economy related news here. I think this is important. South yeah. Korean government raising natural gas prices for households uh, following its raise in electricity bills. Chi, let's also get the details of that. Right. So the Ministry of Industry, Trade and Energy said today that starting April, which is tomorrow, natural ga gas prices for households will be increased by 3% or 0.431 to 14.651 per megadrol. Now, the price for commercial use will rise 1.3% or 0.171 and this would raise the average monthly gas bill by 861 to 29,301 from the current average of 28,441. Now the government is planning three more hikes in May, July and October this year according to the revised unit cost of raw materials last year and as I've uh, we've mentioned earlier the electricity bill will also go up by 0.91 starting tomorrow. Uh, of course, uh, also, I just want to make it clear, uh, just add this very quickly because we do have to wrap up. Statistics Korea showing industrial output declined 0.2% in February from the previous month compared with the 0.3% on-month fall in January. Second consecutive months of decline, first time in 21 months since May 2020. Let's wrap it up at that. I wish we had more time to discuss uh, some of these issues. But guys, thank you as always for the reports and your insights. It's always a pleasure. Stay safe and we'll see you guys again. See you next week. Thank you. You can listen to Korea Now with me, SJ Lee, by downloading the Arirang Radio application or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com. So make sure you tune in Mondays through Fridays, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Korea time.